Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For today's pre-roll space, I want to take a moment to recommend to you an episode of another project that I'm working on. A lot of you probably already know that I host another podcast called Off Duty. Now, I don't typically pitch for this show because it's probably not the type of show that the Truth and Justice audience would be interested in. The show is a comedy podcast of sorts, but it's really just myself and a couple of other firefighters and a guest every week just kind of goofing around in our off-duty time. We play characters. It can be kind of rude and crude, so it's probably not most of your cup of tea. But I do want to recommend to all of you to listen to episode 22, which dropped last Monday. And the reason that I'm recommending this to you is because that episode seemed to touch a lot of people's lives and really make an impact. In this particular episode, we're a lot more serious than normal, and we address a very heavy issue. The guest on last week's episode was a friend of mine named Michelle Trivet. Last year, Michelle's husband, who is also a friend of mine, committed suicide. And also, my assistant, who some of you have heard from, Mike Bussing, last year at age 26, lost his 26-year-old brother. So on this episode, we have a serious conversation about dealing with grief and suicide. And I think the finished product ended up to be a great method of building awareness for suicide prevention and dealing with grief. So if these are issues that you're interested in, check out the Off-Duty Podcast, Episode 22, Michelle Trivet. I wouldn't recommend listening to it when you're around a lot of other people, and I would definitely recommend having a box of Kleenex handy. That's Episode number 22 of the Off-Duty Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and today I want to offer a sincere thank you to every single one of you. After last week's episode, Triple Header, where I really made clear what the mission of the Truth and Justice podcast is, I received an overwhelming amount of emails, tweets, Facebook messages from thousands of listeners that just wanted to show their support for what we're doing. So thank you to all of you who have taken the time to write those messages. I don't always have time to get back to every single one of you, but I want to let you all know here that every one of them means an awful lot to me. It is definitely a driving force for me to continue to go forward with this movement, knowing that I have so many people behind what we're doing. Today's episode is going to be broken into two segments. Segment number one is going to be an opportunity for you, the listeners, to be heard. In about an hour, I'm going to be taking phone calls from anyone who wants to call in to discuss any of the cases that we're working on or for that matter, ask any questions they might have or make comments. I haven't done this since last summer, but I really enjoyed that episode. I appreciated the opportunity to be able to speak to so many of you, and i love for all of you to have the opportunity to have your voice be heard on the podcast. After the listener call-in segment, I'm excited to announce that we are going to have a very special guest on today's show. Jeffrey Diskovich was a man who, at the age of 17 years old, despite a negative DNA test, was wrongfully convicted of a murder and rape. 
After his conviction, Jeffrey lost six different appeals and was denied parole because he refused to admit guilt for a crime that he didn't commit. 16 years into his sentence in 2006, further DNA testing was done and that DNA was run through a DNA data bank and not only proved Jeffrey's innocence, but also identified the actual perpetrator. And one of the most heartbreaking parts of this story is that the man that had actually committed this rape and murder went on to murder another person just a couple of years later. This woman was a mother of two, and he was out in the free world to commit this murder because Jeff was sitting behind bars. Besides the fact that Jeff is just an amazing person and he's doing a lot of work to advocate for the wrongfully convicted, one of the reasons that I wanted to have him on the show is to bring more awareness to all of us to the fact that false confessions do happen. I'm sure you were wondering how someone could be convicted of a crime when there was a negative DNA test. And the reason Jeff was convicted is because he confessed. He confessed to a crime that he didn't commit. And a false confession is something that is almost impossible for people to wrap their brain around. Jeff was tried before a jury of his peers, and that jury knew that there was a DNA test performed and that it wasn't a match to Jeff. But they convicted him anyway, unanimously. And the reason was that even though the science proved that it wasn't him who committed the murder, Jeff had actually confessed to this crime, and they couldn't get past that. So in the second segment today, Jeff is going to share his experiences and talk about what he's doing now to prevent this from happening again. But before we get to Jeff's interview, it's time to hear from you. Hello, this is Truth and Justice. You're on the air. Hello, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Is this Andrew? It's fine, yeah. Can you heard me properly. <laughs> Man, I'm so glad to hear from you. I wanted to make sure I gave you a chance to get in on the call in from across the pond because you are one of my listeners that have been with me since the very, very beginning serial dynasty days. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I'm in for the long haul. I'll still be listening until the day I die. <laughs> that's, that's great. I'll stay, I'll stay loyal. You thought I wouldn't, yeah. I appreciate it. So you wanted to call in, Andrew, today, and you've got the first opportunity to uh, make any comments you have or ask any questions you got. So go right ahead. Well, basically, Bob, you know, uh, how does the, you know, you know, when you start investigating things, how long does it take you to go from realizing that you've got a case that you can actually go forward with on the podcast to, you know, like getting information ready to produce an episode and put it out? Is it a week? Is it weeks or is it months or? Uh, well, the process that, you know, the, the first part is deciding if I have a case that we want to work. And I get, you know, I, I set aside one day of my work week just filtering through cases. You know, I just had one, uh, earlier this week that someone had sent me in. The person had been wrongly convicted or they claimed that they had been and, uh, someone else in the jail confessed to the crime and they couldn't get out. So, Sounded like a very compelling case, but cases like that, I've got to very quickly kind of triage them. Uh, in that particular case, I found that uh, the guy in prison probably is guilty. The confession was from an inmate who knew the man and was uh, uh, has terminal cancer and is serving a life sentence. So there was some reasons for him to give the the confession. He was just trying to help his buddy out. That's the process I kind of go through uh, with available case documents without spending a lot of time to see if there's something there. If I understand your question right, are you asking more as far as each week or, or what it takes to get the information to be able to produce an episode? Yeah, you know, well, you know, when you put these four-year things in, 
How long do you, how long are you waiting for information back from them? Is it like in Britain, twenty eight days or longer? Uh, sometimes it just depends. Um, I've actually developed in the you know the Kenny Snow case, the Smith County case. What I found there is that the people that work in the courthouse that aren't on the legal side, that are on the clerical side, they're pretty disgusted with what goes on there too. And I've kind of built some relationships there where they help me out to where every time I'm heading to Tyler, I can just send them an email, say, hey, can you pull this file for me? And they've got it there waiting for me. So it's relatively quickly. Most of the time, you know, like at the beginning of the case, a lot of times it was sometimes over a month before I would get the information to build the case. And that's why uh, at the beginning of the Smith County case, you know, was I, I, I had a whole bunch of information on the case. I started it and then I needed more info to uh, verify, uh, you know, the stories and the allegations that were there. And it was taking forever to get those documents. And so that's why we did some of the interviews and filled some of those things in. So it's, it's a constant challenge making sure that I've got good content for each week while waiting for paperwork and information like that. So every time it's it's a little bit different. And so that's kind of my my process is luckily I just had uh over the last few weeks a listener that has volunteered to edit the podcast for me, which is awesome because I would spend eight to twelve hours every week just editing. And now that he's taken that burden off of me, that leaves me a whole nother day at least to do research and show prep. So it is like, you know, a proper let's say forty plus hours a week job then that you're having to do. You know, I I've I thought that podcasting might be, you know, fifteen, maybe twenty hours a week, but it seems to me like you've actually put in loads of hours in. Oh yeah, it's um forty hours would be a minimum. Most of the time it's more like fifty or sixty and then have the you know I travel a lot now to get some of that information and do uh, investigations on the uh, actually on the scenes uh, where these cases are at. So that obviously adds some time. But yeah, there's a lot of nights where you know I'm I'm in here at seven in the morning and I'm punching out of here by eight nine o'clock at night to go back into the house. You know some some days are shorter, but yeah, it's it's most definitely a full time job, and that's that's why I finally decided to leave the fire department and do this solely full time because I was working a full time job. And still putting this many hours in evenings and the weekends, and I was, I was never sleeping or seeing my family. So, yeah, but how hard has it been to go from being like a part of a team at the fire station to being, you know, pretty much a lone ranger as you are? Has that been tough or not? You know, uh, I would have, I thought and I expected that it would be, uh, but that's kind of the beauty behind what we're doing here is, you know, I always say the the truth and justice army, but. Even though I've never met most of you, I don't feel like I'm on my own. Like I always, I always feel like I've got all these other people to help me and bounce ideas off of. Uh, and so, even though I might be the only one here in the studio, uh, it doesn't feel like I'm on my own. It feels like I've got a. It feels like I am still part of a big team. All right, yeah. It, it seems like you know you've. I mean, you're on the right track, but it seems like every day's a, you know, a tough day because you've got to get things right, and obviously you can't broadcast anything that's you know, not 110% right, can you? Because you don't want to see yourself having to stand up in court or anything or get saved because you've said anything wrong. Yeah, it's, it's, it is honestly that, that part of it that I think a lot of people don't think about is it's, it's tough because you're dealing with, I mean, talking every episode, days and days of research and notes. And, and then I have to, I don't script the podcast. I just kind of make a general outline and then I just kind of speak off the cuff. And you know, a lot of times by the time I'm recording, it's getting to be late at night and I'm tired. And, you know, if you hear a 40 minute episode, 
that's probably three hours of recording time for me. And so you know, people will send me a tweet like, oh, you you said somebody's last name wrong or you did that. And that stuff happens all the time because it's just I'm exhausted by the end of the night and I don't realize I said it. And then I send it off to the editor and then well, you miss some of those things. But, yeah, I've got to be very careful factually. Matter of fact, last week's episode, the triple header, uh, I misspoke that I have to correct on this. Ep- well, I guess this is going to be on this episode. So here's my correction. I said yeah. that uh, Officer O'Shea called Don at one o'clock in the morning and is actually Officer Adcock. And I knew that and it was in my notes. It just, I just misspoke when I said it. But stuff like that is it happens all the time. And it's just because of the process. I can't believe the bile you've had to spat your way for, having, for telling people what you think about Don. That's just not right at all, is it? Yeah, it's... <laughs> You know, it's it kind of comes with the territory. I know that, you know, what I'm discussing is it's a controversial topic. There are people that are really heavily vested in one side or the other. So I kind of expect it. But, yeah, I was kind of surprised at the amount of negativity. But then, you know, follow that up with after I released that last episode and explained this. Because there were so many, so much misinformation about what actually happened. You know, it's even uh, Crime Writers on Serial addressed it in their episode and i'm listening to it and i'm like jesus they they don't even have the facts right you know they were saying that it was yeah you know uh somebody from the audience just asked me a question and i answered it and it was like and i wanted to scream through my radio or my uh my phone i'm like no a highly respected journalist and prosecutor and attorney asked me the question in an official capacity on the panel that's a very different thing but but what was nice was after I kind of explained things, the amount of support that I've gotten from all of the listeners after that has just been incredible. I mean, on Twitter and Facebook and just, I mean, probably now close to a thousand emails of just people just saying, you know, hey, Bob, we support you. We got your back. And you were one of those people that did that and just, you know, we're with you to the end. And uh, it, 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 it kind of makes the... It, it, it takes the sting away about getting, you know, shit on for, uh, you know, the couple of days before that to know that not everyone agrees and that's fine, but that I do have a, a large audience that is so supportive means a lot. I reckon I'm broccoli's was sat on the whiskey when you were saying that, won't you? <laughs> you know, you know, I don't, uh, I try to hide, I, to stay away from Reddit as much as possible, but I can only imagine. I'm sure. I'm sure she was oh. really excited about it. Oh, well, I, I don't log in there anymore. I read some bio last, you know, about Susan Simpson and stuff like last year, and I just stopped logging, and I thought, you know, the people I respect, and I don't respect Reddit, so I just logged out, and I've never been back. Yeah, I, I pretty much avoid it unless somebody sends me an email with a link to something that they think I should look at, and then I'm always I'm always pissed that I did, because I, I can't help it. I start reading the comments, and it's just, it's yeah, it's it's a pretty nasty place. But hey, Andrew, yeah. I better let you go because I've got about 20 minutes on with you and I've got to get in a bunch of other calls that are going to start in about 10 minutes. Um, what's that? Oh, I lost you. You still there? I said, all right, Bob. Okay. Well, thank you so much for calling in. And, and Andrew, I'm going to get in touch with you because one of these days I want to have you call into the off-duty podcast. You said you want to do that sometime. And Oh, yeah. Can you? I, I listened to last night's, well, yesterday's recording last night and pass my regards on to Michelle and Mike, please. I will absolutely do that. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, and thank you. Yep, and we'll talk soon. Thanks for calling. Yep, all right. Bye, Bob. Yep, Stay bye. safe. All right, you too. Thanks. Hello, you're on the air with Truth and Justice. Hi, 
Hi, Bob. My name's Mary. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. Um, I'm sorry. I feel like I'm almost finally getting in touch with a friend because <laughs> <laughs> I'm so used to listening to you. Um, but I've been dying to talk to you about all these cases. I've been following Adnan and Abby and now um, Kenny. And I've listened to the whole interview with Kenny, and I just kind of have some questions about the timeline. Okay, go right ahead. So they picked Kenny up and arrested him before they interviewed him. Is that correct? Yes, he was picked up and placed under arrest uh, on the 30th, January 30th, uh, around 3 p.m., and then they didn't do the interview and interrogation with him until the next morning, about 9 in the morning. And so he had been in the jail all night right? Um, prior to his interview. Okay. Yep. And then they interviewed him again later the same day, and that's when he confessed? Yeah, well, they, they interviewed him for uh, just over an hour, and then they concluded the interview, and they took him outside, and he says that they let him have a cigarette, and while he was having a cigarette, they told him that if he didn't confess that they were going to arrest his girlfriend, Sean, and charge her with the crime, and he then agreed to confess to the simple robbery of Bill Cole's used tire. So then they took him back in, um, not into the interrogation room, but into one of the detective's offices, and recorded another interview there where he confessed. But you couldn't really see what the detectives were doing in the interview. No, you, I mean, the way the camera is set up, it's kind of in the middle of the room, so you can see Vanessa, you know, on the side edge of the camera, uh, but Waller is back behind the camera for most of it, so we don't know what he was doing. Is it typical procedure not to interview somebody before you arrest them? Uh, it depends on the crime. I mean, it's not completely out of the question. If you have evidence, uh, enough to get a judge to sign off on a warrant, uh, then you can. In, in Kenny's case, um, the only evidence they had was the Crime Stoppers tip. And then supposedly both victims identified him by his mugshot. They used that information to right, give to well, the judge and the judge signed off on the warrant. But I mean, that doesn't even seem like they did identify him at this point. I, I'm, I'm curious about that, too. I mean, both victims have said that they only ever signed off on mugshots once or they only ever saw mugshots once. The police reports say that they did twice, and in uh, Juan Martinez's case, two times. So I have my doubts whether it was ever actually Kenny that they identified. So, I mean, he basically knew, too, he wasn't going home because he had been arrested when he was asking about a lawyer. Right. Yeah, he was. Well, and you hear him asking, you know, when he was he was asking how long it, at the beginning of the interview, he's asking how long it will take for to get a lawyer. I believe that Kenny at that point thought that he was going to go home. I mean, he, In his mind, he didn't do this. They couldn't possibly have any evidence against him. And that's why he says that he agreed to talk to them without a lawyer. They kind of convinced him that, you know, hey, this is going to go faster if we just do this and don't wait for You know, they told him, you know, there's no judges in today and you can't get a lawyer today. You'll be here all weekend. So he right. finally just agreed to talk to him without a lawyer because, you know, he thought that he was going to be going home. So when did they set his bail? Because I thought I heard him mention it a little bit in in the interview, but I couldn't quite understand if that's what he was saying or not. Yeah, his his bail was set the day he was arrested. I'm not sure how that went down, um, whether they had a bail hearing or just a judge set it when he was arraigned. But yeah, his bail was set, and I don't have the paperwork in front of me. Honestly, it was ridiculous. It was something like $170,000 or something like that. 
And that's what you heard in the interview. Right. Saying, it sounded why, like he mumbled. Yeah. Yeah. He said, why yeah, they, why like they set my damn bail so high? Yeah. Right. And I was just like, well, how high is it? I mean, that's just crazy to me. Yeah. It was that, that's the, and don't, don't, <laughs> I don't want to, uh, to say this is fact because I don't remember off the top of my head, but I want to say it was like $170,000 somewhere on there. And I still don't even understand that timeline, or not the timeline, but I don't even think he knew where they were at or what even address he even went to to buy his tire. It was so crazy. I was just, it was painful almost because I don't see how they the, the law enforcement officers figured anything out from that interview. No, as far as where supposedly right. any of that occurred. Right, and that's what you know. I was saying in the uh, the episode where I was kind of dissecting it. And you can hear in the long form, it's like he's he's clueless through that whole thing. He doesn't know where this robbery happened. He and and you can see he doesn't know directions. Uh, you heard him, you know, try to for ten minutes try to explain where he bought the tire, and he knew where, but he couldn't quite articulate the place where he bought it. You know, so th- th- he really didn't give them anything through that entire interview. The end of the interview, he starts to say, "Well, hey, maybe it was plump." Because, you know, they're saying it was a red car and a blue car. She had a red car and a blue car. She borrowed his car. But no, they well, didn't. Well, I would make that logical jump. So. Yeah. And they're saying red and blue car. Yeah, I, w- I would too. I mean, and that's kind of what I was getting at is you could hear, you could put yourself in that position. And, and a lot of people will do that when they're being interrogated where they, they try to figure this thing out. It's like, wait a minute. Okay. You're this and this. And you're kind of putting two and two together. And yeah, you're going to offer alternative theories to the police because you're going to do, you're, at that point, you're just kind of flailing and you're going to give them anything you can give them to try to get them to go a different direction than towards you. Exactly. I mean, I've worked, I worked with, I do investigations actually. I do, right now I'm doing adult protective services, but I used to do child protective services as well. And I've done interviews or I've talked to these people and felt their pain. And like, it's just amazing to me the stuff that I've seen. And couldn't control, and and this just it terrifies me that this could be my child one day, and so that's why I've been paying so close attention to it. All the cases is because I don't want this to happen to my children. It literally can happen to anyone, and you'll hear Sunday when this episode drops after the listener call-in segment is the interview with Jeff Diskovich, and he was 16 years old when he was convicted of a murdered rape that he didn't commit. I mean, it had nothing to do with it. Uh, it's, so literally you realize like this could happen to any of us. I've got time for one more quick question, uh, and then I've got to I've got to start taking some other calls. My phone's blowing up. <laughs> well, okay, I I think that's pretty much it. Um, I was just well, I do. Um, he never got out, correct? Until he did the um, snitching at that other hearing. After that, he was in, correct? Yeah, he he stayed in the Smith County Jail for almost two years. So he was arrested on January 30th, 97, and he wasn't uh, released or even sentenced until November 12th, 1998, which was consistent with what he had told us, which is they told him the only way he was getting out is if he got Edward Aids convicted. And so he sat there for two years until Aids got convicted, and then they let him out. That's just crazy. Well, thank you so much for everything you do, Bob, and I appreciate um letting us call in and talk to you. Um, I want to email you every episode, but I know you don't have time to read through all that so i'm so glad you took call today oh well thank you so much for calling look forward to hearing from you again all right thanks yeah bye with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry 
Sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, you're on the air in Truth and Justice. Hi, Bob. This is Ashley from Louisiana. Hey, Ashley. How are you? I'm great. How are you today? I'm doing great. My main question is, is there any new news in the Obby case? Uh, there is a little bit, actually. Um, since the last episode, I mentioned that he had courts on Thursday. His new attorney that all of the listeners funded filed a motion immediately to last week to push that back till this Thursday. She wanted time to really go through all the evidence and prepare an argument for that probable cause examination. So she was able to do that. They granted the motion. So now we're, we don't have court until this coming Thursday. And she's really hoping to make a case at that hearing to get the charges dropped based on no probable cause for the initial stop. Awesome. And then um, if you have time, one more. If you have an opportunity to go visit Adnan in jail, would you or did you think about that when you went up there for the hearing? I definitely would if I had the opportunity, but the prison systems don't quite work the way we think they do. It's it's not as simple as just going in and visiting. There's a process they have to go through to add people to their visitor list and get registered. For example, like like Krista can't even visit him anymore because when he changed prisons, they messed up his visitor list and she got dropped off of it. So not just anybody okay. that could go see him. So I probably would not have the opportunity to do that. Well, I just want to say thank you from everyone down here. You're huge at, um, we're at the Secretary of State in Louisiana. You have a huge fan base here, and that's our go-to every week is to take notes and ask each other questions and to go bother you on Twitter to what who can get to Bob and who can figure out what we can. So thank you. <laughs> You're welcome, and thank you all so much for the support. And Make sure you tell all your friends thank you from me as well. I will. You have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you for calling. Hello, you're on the air with Truth and Justice. Well, hi, Bob. This is Diane Hahn. I really didn't think I was going to get through. <laughs> well, you made the cut. How you doing, Diane? Uh, I'm doing good. I'm out running errands on my uh, lunch hour. Got a sign for my taxes and pick up dry cleaning and that kind of stuff. And I just thought I'd, I'd give it a try. I don't really have any questions for you. Um but I just want, you know, I, I thought I'd call and just give you some encouragement and let you know that I love what you're doing. I love, you know, just uh, your integrity and what you stand for. And, you know, you've sacrificed a lot to chase this dream of yours. And um, you have a lot of people who who are kind of following you and and just, you know, appreciating, you know, what you're doing for uh, the wrongfully convicted. Well, thank you so much for taking the time just to call me and tell me that, you know, I get I get a lot of emails and tweets from uh, fans like you that, that give me those words of encouragement. And 
And I think I've said it before, but you know, I don't always have time to email or tweet back all of those. But uh, this phone call and all of those, they really do mean a lot to me. It's 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 good to know that I've got this support network behind me that's behind what we're doing here. It does mean a lot. Well, you do, and and I have a funny little story to tell you. Um, but my sister hadn't. Uh, nobody in my network um, listened to podcasts, followed serial, or anything. And around Christmas time, I went home and I tried to get my mom to listen. And, um, and she was like, no. And she says, I don't have time for that. And my sister was there. She goes, well, I want to hear more about this. And she binge listened to Serial, Undisclosed, and Truth and Justice. And now she's, uh, she got a phone number just recently for, um, the Innocence Project here in Illinois. And she's, going to look into maybe doing some volunteer work and and stuff like that. So, you know, you what you're doing has really inspired um, you know, people that I know in my network to 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 give a little more, to give back and to do, you know, do something more for um the wrongfully convicted. Well, that's awesome. You know, those are those I love those stories that you know, changing the world one person at a time. So that's well, let her know that, you know, I thank her for her work and applaud her for doing it. And thank you to you and everybody else that has been so supportive. It, it really does mean a lot. Well, it's been my pleasure. And you've been, you know, I'll tell you what, two, or Sundays are Sundays, dog walking with earbuds in my ear, listening to your show. It's just been, you know, definitely um, the highlight of my week and my dog's week too. She appreciates the walk. So. <laughs> well, great. Well, this week you'll get to listen to yourself. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Oh, well, thank you, God. Thanks for taking my call. I won't, um, uh, I won't keep you from important phone calls. I know there's people that probably, you know, want to pick your brain about some things. Um, you know, you are, you're very eloquent. You really state things very well, but I really don't have any questions for you, especially this past week when you kind of cleared up where you're coming from with the whole Don thing. And, and, um, yeah, I mean, you just, you, you're very eloquent when you speak and very distinct. And, um, I think that that's one of the strengths that you have in podcasting that and you do have that kind of that boy next door. I think one of the guys at the um, Night for Justice said that he felt like you were a friend, you know, and he just met you. There, you definitely have some uh, that appeal, that, that you just feel real and approachable and, you know, cool dude. So, All right. Well, I appreciate all that. And thank you so much for calling. And hopefully we'll hear from you again yeah. sometime. All right. Hey, thanks, Bob. Yep. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye. Hello, you're on the air with Truth and Justice. Bob Ross, Jennifer Kern, how are you? I'm great, Jennifer. I saw you tweeting that you were going to try to get through today. I'm glad you did. Yeah, I got carpal tunnel from hitting the redial. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm really looking forward to when this is over, going back and listening to all the voicemails. My thing keeps popping up, but I have all these voicemails. Uh, I would fart. I didn't leave you one, so you won't have to filter through that. <laughs> <laughs> so what's going on? So- First and foremost, I have to tell you, you have quickly become and be, have become one of my heroes with all the work that you're doing. It's very impressive. Oh, thank and you. to dedicate your life's work to it uh, after being in the service industry for as long as you were, it's it deserves commendation. And so thank you for that. Oh, thank um, you. 
I do have a couple comments on all of your cases, actually. Um, I started out with uh, cereal, and at the end of it, probably felt much like you did, didn't know what to believe. Uh, followed through on disclose, but it was really the Truth and Justice podcast that kind of like filtered through everything and really, you know, put everything in perspective, made it understandable. Um, and at the end of it, you know, I firmly believe Adnan is innocent. And uh, I don't want to bring up the name because of all the backlash you got from it, but my opinion is 100% in line with yours. And I was pretty impressed that I came to the same conclusion you did. <laughs> And then uh, on the Kenny Snow case, I, much like you, I can't say whether or not he's guilty. I have a suspicion he may have done the non-aggressive one and not done the aggressive one, but I don't know. It's it's really hard to say. You know, for me, the big thing that nags at me with that, I mean, first of all, there was no evidence. There was just his confession, but it's it's the fact that if he had done it, why this ridiculous, massive cover-up? You know, why not just have Bill Cole go in and give a statement? And just, you know, why all these weird strings being pulled in this case? If he had actually done it, it would have been simple enough to convict him. But the jury's, yeah. jury's still out on that. that was a revelation when you said that. He didn't, they had a different guy show up in court. I was like, what the heck? Yeah, that to me, that's the most telling thing. You know, and, and again, I I'm not prepared to say... Kenny Snow is 100% innocent of this because I just, I don't have the, the proof just to say that. But for me, that was, when you have a different victim show up in court to give a victim statement, there's probably a reason for that. Yep. No, I agree. And, you know, not to use uh, a firehouse type of uh, quotation, but, you know, you wonder where there's smoke, there's fire, you know? Right. Yeah, for sure. And then uh, on the Abby case, I give that young man a lot of credit because I uh, I'm a I have a healthy fear of authority, and so if a cop told me to do something, I probably wouldn't even think about it and would just do it. So I give that kid a lot of credit for standing up for himself. And I agree, you know, he maybe didn't react uh, the way he should have in all of the circumstances, but uh, he certainly had a right to be concerned about what they were doing for doing to him. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people have a hard time putting themselves in other people's positions or mindsets. You know, so we look at something like that. We look at Abby's situation and we think, what would I do? And and, and like I, I said on the podcast, if it was me, I would have just done what I was told. But yeah, in, in Abby's situation, you know, it, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the right thing to do. In Abby's situation, right. he is come hell or high water, he is a young man of extreme principle. And I've learned that from having him in class, listening to his speeches. You know, I teach uh, I teach people how to teach. I teach an instructional techniques class, so he has to give a lot of speeches. Mm-hmm. And he he's just always been this, this man who stands on principle. So for him, for his mindset, he there's no way he was going to let his rights be violated. And he was going to make a stand. And he did so in about as respectful of manner as you can. You know, he he didn't he didn't cuss at the guy. He never swore once. He wasn't raising his voice. He wasn't yelling at the officer. You know, he he first just asked him and then he told him, "You're you're this is illegal. Get out of my car." And it's it sometimes it's hard to put yourself in that mindset. Again, it was it's not what I would have done, but at the same time, I, you know, I'm willing to support him for standing up for his rights. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Uh, it took a lot of courage to do what he did, that's for sure. 
One more question for you. Do you have any idea how long it's going to take this judge to come back with a ruling on the PCR hearing? I I honestly have no idea. You know, I was hoping uh, that it would happen already by now, to be honest, you know, because, you know, the judge is retired. It's the only case he's working on. But at the same time, if remember, this is probably literally the last case this judge is ever going to hear, the last one he's ever going to rule on. And it is probably the most highly publicized, if not one of the most highly publicized cases in United States history. And I'm sure he's crossing every T and dotting every I. He's probably, I would guess, giving a written response or a written opinion, which means he'll be citing case law and point by point by point going through why he ruled the way that he did. So it's not out of the ordinary for it to have taken this long. I don't know when it's going to. I can't imagine it's going to be a whole lot longer, but I would just be speculating and guessing. I think it was maybe, I can't remember if it was Susan or Rabia replied back to me on Twitter that uh, probably the longer it takes, the more chance it is to be an Adnan's favor. So here's hoping. (laughs) Right. Yeah, here's hoping. And I don't know. I don't know that it, they would know obviously better than me uh, because someone just asked me that yesterday too. uh, If that taking longer is good or bad for Adnan. And and I don't necessarily think it means one thing or the other. I, I I think that the judge is probably researching and finding case law and just making sure that he gets this right, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know other people are trying, and I don't want to gobble up all of your time, but uh, thanks for chatting with me. It's a dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for calling. All right. Have a great day, Bob. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Hello, you're on the air with Truth and Justice. Hi, um, just wanted to say that you're doing a great job. Um, I'm listening over in the UK at the minute, so can't really help you out much, but you are doing a stand-up job for everything, you know, everything that's going on over there. Oh, I appreciate um, it. Just one question, though. Sure. Well, first, what's your name? Who am I talking to? Uh, Pete. Pete? Nice to meet you, Pete. All right, what's your question? All of the um, corruption and everything else that's going on with the police in the Adnan Syed case and the uh, Kenny Snow case, how come no one's investigated the police? Nobody this day and age has stood up and gone, this is happening, so why is it not not, not being investigated? Well, that that's kind of part of what we're doing. Um, when I say we, I mean me and all of you, is to try to bring this to enough public attention that we can get the federal authorities to investigate. And unfortunately, I'm finding, you know, I was kind of ignorant to this before I started doing this work. You know, I thought, if you, hey, if you've got you know, a sign of corruption, that somebody will go investigate it. And unfortunately, it's not necessarily the case. You have to, basically, you have to get the Department of Justice's attention. There needs to be a pattern of corruption. It's got to be pretty obvious corruption. A lot of times, if There'll need to be a racial component before they'll get involved. And, and, you know, they're towing a line because we want to obviously make sure that police departments and prosecutors and judges are all doing their job correctly. But at the same time, they want to give them enough of a leash that they can do their job properly without having, you know, it, it, it takes a lot of resources to investigate, you know, a police agency or something like that. And if they're constantly, every time somebody thinks somebody made a mistake, that they're having to deal with, you know, federal investigations. So that's part of the reason why they don't want to get directly involved. 
part of it is just resources and staffing. But my hope is, you know, this case we're working in Smith County, you know, we're just even stuff that hasn't aired on the podcast yet, just uncovering just massive, massive amounts of extreme corruption in that county. And we're hoping yeah. we can build enough of a case there that uh, we can get the Department of Justice's attention and get them in to investigate. All right, that's cool. It's just just from a, a UK perspective. I mean, it's if there was the slightest bit of corruption in the English police, then it would be investigated immediately to try and find out if there was or if there wasn't. Whereas it just seems odd that you've got to get all this information before it gets investigated. I, I wish we could. Uh... If you see what I mean. Yeah, I wish we could bring that type of overwatch to the American system because, you know, we have, for the most part, you know, uh, a country full of great police officers that are necessary, that are doing great work. But there's also a lot of corruption and a lot of, you know, we've only talked about two, three different towns so far on the show. And there's a lot more of it in a lot more places. And I think part of that reason is because there's not a whole lot of oversight from the police perspective. So hopefully someday we can get to a place where the UK is, where there is that oversight. And I'm not saying that we've got it perfect. You know, obviously we do. There's bits that do slip through the cracks and stuff, but it just seems a, a different system to what you guys have. And it's just from, from our point of view, it just seems odd that it's not right. that well, kind of way where you've got to build up a case yourself and show that there's, all different types types of corruption before the official people will investigate. Yeah, it's frustrating, and you know, in the UK is you know, no system is perfect, but I I do know that the UK is leaps and bounds ahead uh, in this perspective. You know, for example, the UK has you know laws governing you know how people are interrogated, and they put any kind of confession oh, through yeah. a statement analysis, and they they look through it to make sure that it's legitimate and how the interrogation techniques happen, and that's. Another thing that I would love to see happen in the United States, because you know, I just in the, in the interview you'll hear on this episode after the call-in section, uh, Jeff Diskovich, who is a exoneree, cited a statistic that is just it's insane. It's, I think he said 25% of wrongful convictions that are proven to be wrongful convictions or DNA evidence, 25% of those, the person was convicted because they falsely confessed. You know you have a big problem with your interrogation techniques when that many people are confessing to crimes that they didn't commit. Yeah, it's a bit of a, a big number, that really, isn't it? Yep. I suppose if people can't see any kind of way out, it's... Yeah, and, and that'll... Yeah, uh, only option, really, isn't it? Yeah, and it's 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 a crazy thing to try to wrap your brain around, but um, I think Jeff does a good job in the interview of kind of explaining, because he gives first-hand experience because he confessed to the crime that he didn't commit. And so he gives first-hand experience as to how and why he did that. Well, hey, thank you so much for calling in. I've got my phones ringing off the hook, so I better get to the next caller. But uh, especially all the way from the U.K., really really appreciate all your support, and thank you for taking the time to call in today. No problem. Keep up the good work. You're doing a fantastic job. Thank you. And the whole team over there. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. No problem. Yeah, Angie. Yep, bye. Cool. Bye. Hello, you're on the air with Truth and Justice. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. This is um Celia. I'm calling from Ohio. Celia, are you the Celia from Twitter? 
Yes, I am. I am. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I recognized that name. How you been? Um, I've been good. How about you? Really, really good. So what's on your mind That's today, good. Celia? I just had a question about um the Kenny Snow case. Okay. I, I wasn't sure like if you had um already answered this and I tried to go back to listen to some of the podcasts, but um so you had said um you were going to set up a call with um Edward Eights. Right. And I was just wondering, um, if you were uh did, were you able to speak to Kenny or did that not happen yet, or to Kenny, are you in the process of trying to do that? To Ken, yeah. Kenny or Ace? Yeah, I've I've spoken with Kenny several times, uh, and I've got matter of fact, in oh, okay. one of these upcoming episodes, um, I'll have some sound bites from some of the conversations that we've had. But Ace, I had to go. It's a big process to go through to get your phone registered and then register with a particular inmate. Um, but hopefully, uh, this Friday I'm scheduled, to, and it's it's tricky too because I have to like write a letter and say, call me at this time. Hopefully, the phone will be ready, but hopefully, Ed Aids will be calling me at 1 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday. So, because um, it, it's so hard communicating back and forth with letters to get a real clear picture of what's going on. So, um, and I'm sure you know, it's like through the through the Kenny Snow case, it was, it, was, it was really confusing at the beginning because he was telling me things in his letter, and he doesn't write real well. And then I'm looking at case documents and trying to connect the dots. But once I was able to actually speak with him and he could explain things to me, it made a lot more sense. I'm hoping that'll be the case with Ed on Friday. Okay. And so is is that like your next big case, the, the Edward case? I, I'm kind of considering it one big case. You know, it was originally just the Kenny Snow case. And then I've kind of, through that, started getting involved in Kerry Max Cook's case, who was also from Tyler, Texas. He's got a hearing for... Uh, he's trying to fight for exoneration for act, actual innocence. Uh, he's got a hearing next month. I'll be going down for that. Uh, and then Kenny's case, of course, led into Edward Eight's case because those were connected. And these just they just keep snowballing. So I'm I'm kind of not considering it the Kenny Snow case and the Ed Eight's case as two different cases, but this is the Smith County case now, and, and we're going after the system in general. Um, and we'll be working. You know, with and for both Kenny Snow and Ed Eights, and I've got a few other cases in Tyler that have been brought to my attention that we'll kind of be lumping into it. And what we're trying to do is to build a case strong enough to show the kind of corruption that's happening there to get the Department of Justice interested and involved and get them to come and investigate and hopefully make some changes in Smith County. Okay. And I just have one more question about um, the Tyler Police Department just in general. Um, so I know with Kenny case, Kenny's case, and I think with maybe Edward's case, um, the police department destroyed evidence like, like way before they were like legally supposed to. Is there some sort of like penalty for that? Like, can someone go after them legally for them destroying that evidence before they were allowed to? Well, the, the tricky thing is, so Texas in 2001, enacted a what's called the biological evidence preservation law and that law requires any biological evidence to be maintained preserved and maintained as long as the case is open in any way so even if someone is convicted if they're in prison it has to be maintained until they are released from prison even if their appeal options are all exhausted they still have to keep it that law also gave people the right to file to have their DNA tested because because prior to that, which is the case in a lot of states, you have to make a case to the court to allow them 
are for them to allow the DNA to be tested. Part of that law in 2001 basically said that you have the right to have it tested. And I think that that's a big reason why all of a sudden, just a couple months later in early 2002, I think that's why the Tyler Police Department started destroying evidence because they knew that these inmates could come back and test it. And if they did that, then that would expose some corruption and it would probably exonerate a lot of people, I'm guessing. I've only looked at two cases uh, that were involved with that. Both Kerry Max Cook and Kenny Snows, both of their evidence was destroyed in 2002 after that law went into effect. Ed H's DNA test, uh, when he requested his DNA to be tested, they said that they lost it, that the box being transported from the trial court to the appellate court, somehow in that process, the DNA got lost. The problem with that law is it's a good law, but there's no remedy in it. So basically it says you're not allowed to do this, but it doesn't say, but if you break this law, this happens. So in Kerry Max Cook's case, even though they illegally destroyed the DNA evidence in his case, he really has no remedy for that. It doesn't mean that you get the presumption of innocence because they destroyed it. You don't get released because they destroyed it. They just basically get to say, whoops. Kenny Snow's case was the same way. But that's part of that pattern we're looking at. So if we can find more cases where this was done and show a pattern, then we can get the Department of Justice to come in and they can do something about it. Also, in Kenny's case, there was a decision made in the Supreme Court out of Arizona. It's called the Youngblood decision. It was a similar case where DNA evidence was illegally destroyed and there was no remedy and they fought it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And that person didn't win their ruling. But from my understanding, from Michael Ware, the Innocence Project, the ruling set a precedent uh, because the, they said in the in the Supreme Court decision that the reason he has no remedy was because he couldn't show that it was destroyed in bad faith. So what that does is it makes a precedent that says if you can show that the evidence was destroyed in bad faith, meaning it was done on purpose, vindictively, or for whatever reason, then, if my understanding is correct, you could be granted a new trial and that DNA evidence can be presented as though it basically you get the benefit of the doubt so you can say this evidence shows that he didn't commit the crime because you don't know and the reason you don't know is because they destroyed it in bad faith so in kenny's case what we have right now is we have a document that shows that the tyler police department researched the destruction of that evidence what that means from what uh, the innocence project is saying is the fact that they researched it means that they knew that it was illegal for them to destroy it. So therefore, they're hoping to make a case that the evidence was destroyed in bad faith because they knew they weren't supposed to and they did it anyway. Okay, well, that's good to hear. I'm glad that there's some sort of hope there because I, I wasn't sure um, just because of like their reputation. They sort of seem like they just do whatever they want to do and like there is no sort of like repercussions for them. Um, my last question, I, I'll let you go because I, I want to hold up the line because I know like it took forever for me to get in. I want someone else to be able to call. Um, when is your next trip to Texas? Uh, my next trip to Texas is going to be uh, on April 11th. I'm actually going down to Tyler to go to Kerry Max Cook's hearing. Uh, he has a hearing on the 12th and 13th in Tyler. And uh, I was talking to Kerry last night and decided that I want to be down there and and support him in any way that I can. 
kind of help to publicize what's going on down there and hopefully rally some some of the local troops to come give him some support in that hearing too. So and also while I'm there, I'm gonna I've got some more documents that I need to find. I need to do some more research into the Edward Eights case. So I'll be down there for a few days in the middle of April. Is that the hearing? Um well what what is that hearing for? Because he's trying to get his record exonerated. Right. Is that what the hearing is for? Yeah, so so Carrie Max Cook uh was convicted of this murder and he was actually on death row and eventually got exonerated. Well, he didn't get exonerated. He was given an Alford plea uh, after spending 18 years in prison. And he was wrongfully convicted. Uh, I believe it was three times. He got his conviction thrown out and they retried him. He got convicted again. He got that conviction thrown out. They retried him and he got that one and he got convicted again, got that one thrown out. They were working on trying him a, a fourth time, and they had gotten some DNA testing done that proved that it wasn't him, and he believes proved who it actually was, who was a suspect that was the should have been the prime suspect right from the beginning. And the state, rather than exonerate him, offered him an Alford plea. Basically, they threatened they're either going to try him again, which he's obviously not had success with that in the past, or they would let him go, plead guilty, we'll let you go. Maintain your innocence, but plead guilty, we'll let you go. So he's been out for about 20 years, but he's still a convicted murderer. And it has had a huge impact on his life. So he's been fighting for the last 20 years to get an actual exoneration. And he has this hearing on the 12th of April is a hearing for um, him requesting exoneration based on actual innocence. So this could be the step that actually clears his name finally almost 40 years later. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it had been that long. Well, I wish him the best of luck. And Bob, thank you so much for answering the we phone. Love you. I'm here with my coworkers. <laughs> <laughs> They're all saying we're going because we're like huddled up in, our, <laughs> in the break room. And I'm just so excited to, to get through. Um, you have a great week and thank you for answering my questions. All right. You do the same. Thanks for calling. Tell all your coworkers I said hello. I will. Thank you. Yeah. Take care. Bye-bye. Hello, you're on the air on Truth and Justice. Hello, Bob. This is Tony Casey from Houston, Texas. Hey, Tony. How you doing? Doing great. Thanks for doing this call-in show. We appreciate everything you do. Just in a moment, take a minute to do the typical gushing all over you thing. <laughs> um, what you're doing, even to people that may be like an engineer or something like myself that doesn't have any interest or any vested interest or anything that can be of a lot of assistance to what you're doing, passion with which you have pursued this has inspiration on example me and things that I do in my daily life. Well, thank so, you. I appreciate that. Above and beyond what, what you're doing directly, it's um it's inspiring. But I have begun to wonder though, like I live in a small town outside of Houston, relatively small, I'm from Alabama originally, um, has have done some very small towns. From what you've seen, particularly in Smith County, do you have anything you could say prevent that from happening, prevent all that corruption from getting set in so deep in the towns where we live? I think that there's a lot of things that we can do. For starters, you know, like in Smith County, it's not unknown that Smith County is uh, is known for corruption. I mean, it's within that area. I mean, even the the clerical workers in the courthouse know it. They've told me. 
But the problem is that no one's ever been able to do anything about it because it's just never been largely nationally to a huge audience known that that's a problem because the people in Tyler, the people who I'm putting in air quotes matter in Tyler, the the people of influence with money think Tyler is a great town and and it is because for that demographic, it's a great place to live. So you've got the people from the, you know, the poor side of the track screaming and yelling that this is a terrible place to be and it's falling on deaf ears. So one thing that we can do is exactly what we're trying to do here, which is expose it to a massively large audience, get people involved who care, people from outside of just that little town of Tyler to help dig into this, build a case that the Department of Justice might be able to actually look into and let these people know that there's people watching them. Aside from that, as a preventative measure, aside from what we're doing, there's got to be a way through, I don't know, term limits. I don't know exactly what the answer is, but what you kind of alluded to is a big part of the problem. And Corey Session told us that when uh, when he interviewed on the show a couple of months ago. These small towns like that, you just people dig in. You've got the same police chief, the same sheriff, prosecutors, judges. Everybody knows everybody. For example, in the Kenny Snow case, you know, if the the conspiracy that seems to be there actually unfolds and ends up being proven true like that's ridiculous that's insane to even think that could happen but the reason it could happen in a town like tyler is because it really only takes three or four people and when those same three or four people have worked together for decades it's a lot easier for that to happen so there somehow there has to be some kind of way to limit that or at least have a set of checks and balances from an outside source to make sure these types of things don't happen. Yeah, I mean, it's a systematic thing, though, because I mean, not just there, but, like, I go to my local elections back in you know, the last little town that I lived in, and, you know, oh, uh, who's, who's the sheriff? Uh, you, you heard any complaints about him? Any problems with that guy? No, I just vote for him again, you know, and then just kind of by default, just as a standard ignorant voter, I'm contributing to what might be a problem or what might be a great sheriff getting another term. Yeah, and that's that's always, with any kind of election, that's the tricky part, is for people to be educated. And I don't know how you fix that. I mean, I would love for you know the our local elections, presidential elections, judges, everybody, for people to really educate themselves on who they're voting for. And the fact is that a large majority of people that are pulling the levers at the polling place really have no idea who they're voting for. Especially when it comes to, and, and I'm guilty of it myself. You know, I'll go to the presidential election. I know I've, I've researched and know who I want to vote for for president, but there's 15 other things on the ballot. And I'm like, oh, that looks good. That looks good. I've heard of that guy. And you vote for him and walk away. Yeah, exactly. So that doesn't sound very okay. encouraging. I mean, <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, it, it's the truth, though. I mean, so I guess, you know, the takeaway from it is to, to take that time. I mean, we're, we'll take the time to do so many other things online that, you know, the time to do that something you have to set aside to do uh but it's a worthwhile thing to do from what i can tell yeah absolutely and then like i said the other side of it is you know if we can't prevent it expose it and put a stop to it and so that's the that's the major purpose of what we're doing here right well you know if people can uh perhaps educate themselves and keep it from becoming such a problem we can knock it down while it's still on anthill and then when it gets to be a mountain then it's your problem yeah, I agree. So everybody listening, uh, make sure you do your research before you go to the polls. All right. Well, appreciate your time. I'll get off here and give somebody else a chance.
All right. Well, thank you so much for calling. Good to have you on board. All right. Thank you. Yep. Bye. All right. I've got time for one more call. Hello, it's Truth and Justice. You're on the air. Good afternoon, Bob. How are you? It's Catherine. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Good. Um, I was going to ask you about that other Sword and Scale episode, but I'd rather find out something about Heyman Lee, if you don't mind. Oh, you're that Catherine. Um, I am. You know, I yeah, get I get sorry. a lot of uh, Twitter messages, so I recognize you as the Catherine with the purple uh, profile picture. Yeah, that's from my fish tank. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious if you or any of your listeners or anybody associated with the Heyman Lee case have ever figured out what those double diamond imprints were on um, Heyman Lee. I must have spent hours, even my kids were looking. Not that they knew what they were, but I, I had the image yeah. on my phone and I was like, have you guys ever seen this before? <laughs> they were like, Mom, what are you talking about? But have you ever heard anybody kind of come up with an idea of what they might be? As far as I know, no one has for, you know, when this summer, when Susan kind of discovered, I think it came from Susan that what those pressure marks were or that they were on Hayes' body. You know, I spent a month trying to find anything I could find that could be them. Isn't that (laughs) weird that nobody's figured it out? Yeah. And personally, I, you know, I've, I've had some people that have showed me, you know, some symbols or things like that that could be similar. But just nothing definitive. Personally, I think that it was from maybe a, like a some kind of a strap, like a backpack strap or something in the clothing or something. And the reason I say that is because on her right shoulder, uh, where the most definitive one was, that was that double diamond pattern, it goes consistently over her collarbone. And so what that tells me is it's not something hard. It had to have been something soft because it was bent around so it's kind of right where like a backpack strap or something like right. that would be like a leather yeah like a leather yeah material or whatever. so that's all i can figure is that it was something soft because you know the way lividity works it's just the blood pooling to the lowest place on the body and anything that is obstructing that or pressing part of the skin up where it's not the lowest place the blood will pool around it and so to leave that area looking lighter in color that's what they call a pressure mark and so, and th- that's part of the reason why, personally, I believe that where her body was left when lividity set in was likely somewhere soft. Uh, something like, um, you know, personally, I think that the most logical place where she was left was probably on a mattress. And I say that because if you look at the, which of course, you know, they're not available for everybody to look at, but uh, when I've looked at the autopsy photos, there aren't typical pressure marks you see from someone that's like laying on hard ground on the floor right Right. because you know anywhere where a bone is protruding you know your your pelvic bones or your knees or anything like that you know you'll see these pressure marks all over the place and none of those exist whereas if you're on a bed and it's kind of contouring to your body there's no pressure anywhere then that's the reason why you wouldn't get the pressure marks and the lividity i don't know that for certain but uh, in my opinion, that's probably the most logical place she was, was somewhere on a soft surface like a bed. And that Back being to the, the hotel room theory. Right, right. You know, that's, that is my theory. I, th- I, I believe she was murdered in a hotel room. I think that she was left there while a plan was made as far as what to do with the body. And, you know, six hours later, after dark, they went back and got her out of the hotel room and took her to the burial site. Yeah, I agree. 
Okay. I was just curious. It's one, it's one of those things that just everywhere I go, I look to see if I can see that imprint, whether it's on my kid's backpack, like you said, or a belt, or it's, it's fascinating that nobody's figured it out yet with so many people looking at the case. Yeah. I mean, I even went to look at some hotels while I was in Baltimore a couple of weeks ago. It was like looking at carpet patterns and bedding, for, and hoping that they were, you know, they still use 20 year old bedding at these cheap hotels. <laughs> I did too. I, I, uh, tweeted, um, Rabia and I asked her for a list of names of some of the hotels that were around there. And I did all the same thing. I went through all their websites and looked at some of their monograms and some of the, yeah, some of the hotel room pictures. And yeah, that was my best bet too. But okay. Well, thanks for answering my question, Bob. Good luck. I enjoyed the podcast. No problem. And, um, I look forward to more, more episodes. Great. Well, thank you so much for calling. It's great to hear from you. Okay. Thanks, Bob. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. I'm here today with Jeff Deskovic. Jeff was wrongfully convicted at 17 years old of a rape and murder, and Jeff has been kind enough to take some time out of his very busy day to talk to us today. So that being said, I want to get right into the interview with Jeff so we don't eat up too much of his time. So Jeff, right off the bat, can we just get right into, I'd like to hear you kind of tell me and the listeners the story of what you went through. What was the crime that you were convicted of, and how did that process happen? How did you end up being convicted for a crime that you didn't commit? Sure, I was uh, wrongfully convicted of murder and rape, which uh, which which I did not uh, commit. Uh, I was uh, wrongfully convicted. I was 16 years old, by the way, at the time I was arrested. Uh, I was uh, 17 by the time the trial rolled around, and I lost. I uh, my wrongful conviction was caused by a coerced false confession, prosecutorial misconduct, brought by the medical examiner and an in public defender. Uh, so let me uh, get into the. Uh, causes it specifically. So in terms of the coerced false confession, a lot of people uh, believe that an innocent person would never confess. But, um, you know, actually it's been the cause of wrongful convictions in 25% of the DNA proof of wrongful convictions. So in my specific case, for about six weeks, the police played this game with me, in which um, uh, half the time they would uh, talk to me as if I was a suspect, and the other half the time they would speak to me as if they needed my help to solve the crime. It would say things like, the kids won't talk freely around us, they around you, um, stop in from time to time. They would ask me opinion questions and then congratulate me on my opinion. Uh, so eventually they got me to agree to take a polygraph test telling me that some, they had received some new information which they wanted to share with me, they could make me, but that would put me in a better position in the system. 
but I have, I can only um, have access to that if they if I took and passed a polygraph. So the next day, rather than go to school, I instead went to the police station for this test, uh, which meant that you know my mother and my grandmother knew that I was, uh, but I, they thought I was in school, so they, therefore they did not call around looking for me. So your they, your parents didn't know that you were taking the polygraph test. They did not. No. Okay, and I no, assume... in, in, in New York, uh, if you're 16 years old, you're considered to be an adult for purposes of being able to uh, speak to the police, or uh, your right to speak to the, to the police without an attorney being present. Okay, uh, so you did you at this point you had not had an attorney nor your parents involved. No, I did not. Okay, so uh, go ahead. You were going in for a polygraph test. Sure, and I thought the polygraph test was going to happen in the police uh, headquarters because uh, that's where other people had been. Uh, polygraph, but instead um, they drove me to the uh, city of uh, Brewster, uh, which is in Putnam County, whereas I was a native of Peekskill, which is in Westchester County. So that meant I couldn't leave on my own. I was dependent upon the police. There were three officers there who I knew were officers, and then there was um, then there was the, the uh, Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, the, uh, the polygraphist, but he was dressed as a civilian, so he was, he was pretending not to be a cop, so I, I never knew he was a police officer. So after putting me in a, a small room where I didn't have an attorney present, they didn't give me anything to eat the entire time I was there. The polygrapher gave me countless cups of coffee, and it seemed clear in hindsight the purpose of that was to get me nervous. So after giving me all this coffee, they attached a polygraph machine uh, to me, and the polygrapher starts interrogating me uh, using a lot of uh, third-degree tactics. He, he, ra- he, raised his, he raised his voice at me. He invaded my personal space. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. As each hour passed by, my fear was increasing in proportion to the time. Towards the end of the interrogation, the polygrapher made a statement to me. He said, "He said, he said, uh, so what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me to the test result that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it." And he said that to me. Um, that really shot my fear to the roof. It was at that moment that the officer was pretending to be my friend. He came in the room and told me that the other officers were going to harm me, but that he was holding them off. I could not do so indefinitely, but I had to help myself. Uh, when he added, if I did as I wanted, that not only would they stop what they're doing, but that I could go home afterwards. Being young, naive, frightened, 16, just totally overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically. Uh, in, in fear of my life, I was really conscious of the fact that nobody, n- nobody knew where I was. Plus the uh, push-pull dynamic of, on one hand, the possibility of harm, and then on the other, this false life was able to meet any bullying. I took the out which he offered and made up a story based upon information which they had given me in the course of the interrogation. By the police officer's own testimony, by the end of the interrogation, I was on the floor in a fetal position, um, planning and control. But needless to say, contrary to the false promise that they gave me, I was, in fact, I was, in fact, arrested and charged with a murder and rape. Now... Before I got to trial, the DNA test results came in from the FBI lab and showed that uh scene and found the victim didn't match. But rather than acknowledge they made a mistake, they still continued to prosecute full speed ahead. The medical examiner on the day for prosecutor got the medical examiner to commit fraud. Specifically, when an autopsy is done, there's audio and written notes which are taken contemporaneously as findings are made. It was only six months after doing that initial autopsy that suddenly for the first time, the prosecutor claimed that he found medical evidence to show that the victim, six, a 16-year-old, uh, 15-year-old immigrant from Colombia, who had been in the country for about a year and a half, living a really sheltered life in which she never went outside, save accompanied by her older uh, sister or her parents, that 
she had been sexually active, which is what opened the door for the prosecutor to argue that it didn't matter that the DNA didn't come from me because his argument was that we could have come from consensual sex. In fact, taking it a step further, uh, he uh, actually named somebody by name that he claimed had had this encounter with the victim, but he never had a DNA test result performed in order to prove that he didn't even uh, call him as a witness to give verbal testimony to that effect. This simply made the unsupported argument to the jury. At the same time, the public defender I had was terrible. He never interviewed or called as a witness by alibi. I was actually playing with a ball when the crime happened. Uh, he never explained to the jury the significance of the DNA not matching me, nor used that to argue that the so-called confession was coerced and false. He didn't, when he kind of cross-examined the medical examiner, uh, it was important to discredit his testimony exposed to uh, this fabrication so as to make the DNA evidence stand up. Instead of doing that, though, um, he set up an open court with a big smile on his face. He and the medical examiner were great friends from way back in the day. Uh, said to him, you're going to be pleased to know that I don't have a single question for you. Uh, he's very my lawyer and very rarely met with me. Uh, when he did meet with me, I tried to explain to him that I was innocent and what happened in the interrogation room. He was always shutting me up. And in fact, at one time, he told me that he didn't care if I was guilty or innocent. And then I wanted to testify both at the pre-trial hearing as well as at the trial because the cops, because the interrogation was not videotaped, it wasn't audio taped, there was no signed confession, it was just the cops' oral account. They conveniently left out the threat and false promise. Uh, so uh, I wanted to testify and, and explain, explain that part of it. Um, so I could answer you know, why I had falsely confessed, but my lawyer wouldn't allow me to do that. Uh, he, he told me that it wasn't his job to prove that I was innocent. It was up to the prosecutor to prove that I was guilty, and he didn't think that happened. Which is kind of a naive way of practicing law. Practicing law. I mean, if you, someone's charged, you charge with a crime that you have to commit, you have to do everything in your power to prove that you're innocent, or you want to risk of being possibly being wrongfully convicted. So added all up, I was wrongfully convicted. Uh, I was stunned when I heard the jury say guilty because I thought that only guilty people were found guilty. But they said what they did, and I was taken into custody. Um, on the day of the sentencing, I begged the judge to overturn the verdict because I was innocent, and I referenced the DNA to support my contention. Uh, he actually told me on the record, uh, maybe you are innocent, because uh, he think there was a doubt. But instead of him stepping up for justice and overturning the uh, conviction, he instead took the easy, politically expedient way out, which was the sentence that you returned with uh, uh, 15 to life. 15 to life was your sentence? That was my sentence. And I, I was sent to a men's maximum security prison to serve the timeout. And of that 15 to 20, I think I read in your <laughs> notes... <laughs> Life. Oh, sorry, excuse me. Um, of that 15 to life, you were 16 years in when you were finally exonerated. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. I uh, lost all seven of my appeals. I got turned down for uh, parole as well because I stood on my innocence rather than um, expressing, taking responsibility, expressing remorse. Ultimately, I was cleared through further DNA testing. Uh, the Innocence Project uh, agreed to take my case. Uh, and that, that was the first significant event that happened. The next was that the prior district attorney, uh, Jeanine Pirro, uh, who was not the DA when I was uh, originally convicted, but she took office when uh, before the first appeal was decided. So it was her office that fought all seven appeals, including blocking further testing. 
uh, she left office. So that was the second. So her, her successor was a lot less invested in the case. And so she was willing to voluntarily allow me to have further testing, whereas Pira wouldn't. Uh, and the third thing was that we got lucky that the actual uh, perpetrators uh, had committed an, an unrelated murder uh, three and a half years later for the school teacher and mother of two. So that resulted in his <clears throat> being uh, imprisoned and his DNA put into the DNA data bank. So we took the crime scene DNA evidence and ran it to the data bank. And not only did it reaffirm my innocence, but it also identified him. And I was uh, released in September 2006. I was fully exonerated on actual innocence grounds November 2nd, 2006. And the actual perpetrator was subsequently arrested and uh, convicted of the crime. Okay. The, the worst part about, I mean, there's so many bad parts about it, but besides the fact that you were, you lost 16 years of your life in prison, that another woman lost her life because of all this misconduct, because had they investigated properly, this man might have been locked up and convicted instead of being free to murder this other woman. I, I agree completely with you. I mean, that's why I, I think that yeah, it's true. It's obviously devastating when someone is wrongfully convicted and you, don't, you send them to prison. You don't just send them, but you also you send um, their, their, their family. But then in a larger sense, uh, it, it's also dramatically impact society in the sense that um, you are you are leaving an actual criminal free to strike again, as, as happened here. So it, it, it framed in a larger fashion, really, wrongful convictions really is a uh, public safety issue. Right, and that, that's one of the reasons why kind of the focus on what I do here is not only to advocate and work for the wrongfully convicted, but to try to bring not only justice for the victim, but to try to actually solve these cases and figure out who actually did it. Because you know, for every wrongful conviction, you know, by, de- by definition, what that means is that there's still a rapist or a murderer or whatever the crime was still on the loose if the wrong person was convicted. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that's a, that's a great point, which kind of brings me to an observation I'd like to make, you know, which is that we see resistance in state legislatures and, and, uh, from law enforcement to measures that would prevent, uh, wrongful convictions and make the system more accurate. Things like videotaping interrogations from beginning to end, things like, uh, better identification procedures. A uh, better system of public defense, um, a standardized evidence preservation system, so that we we can have material, we, the evidence can be preserved to actually subjected to testing. It doesn't make sense to oppose these things, you know. And and but yet there is that resistance. And so even though we all like to think that, you know, we look at a lot of these exoneration cases, uh, my, my own including having happened a long time ago. Uh, with the average length of wrongful incarceration being 14 years, we like to think that because, you know, we're so advanced now in DNA that this could never happen now, but actually it can happen just as easily now as, as it did before because all these, all the causes of the wrongful convictions have largely been unaddressed, uh, by, uh, legislation. Right. I completely agree with you. And getting back to one of those causes, um, because it's relevant to a couple of the cases that we're working right now, uh, I wonder if you'd be willing to talk a little bit more about false confessions, since you were you actually experienced this. You know, that's a it's a big disconnect with people, and it's and admittedly so even for me, it's a really difficult thing to wrap our brains around 
to think that someone would confess to a crime they didn't commit. And it's really difficult for juries to understand, even like in your case, you know, there was DNA evidence that showed that it wasn't you that committed the crime. But would you say it is a contributing factor in your case that the, you know, the jury still couldn't get past the fact that you had actually confessed to the crime? Oh, 100%. Yeah, of course. Well, think about what the jury did. They, they, they ignored the scientific evidence, which was the DNA, the semen not matching it. They ignored that and instead relied on a confession, which was obtained under highly questionable circumstances. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 and then I want to also, uh, add another aspect of, of, of the jury is, you know, we found out that, uh, after I was exonerated that one, one of the, uh, that the situation in the jury room was at one point it was 11 to 1. Uh, there was one holdout juror and, uh, they sent a note out asking if they would be sequestered over the Christmas holiday if they couldn't come up with a, uh, credit. And, uh, the judge said that they would. And, what happened was the other jurors pressured the last holdout juror uh, to to switch his vote um, and and uh, vote to con- vote to convict, even though he was he, he thought that I was innocent because they wanted to rush out of there and get get home to uh, you know the Christmas holidays. Yeah, and there's things like that that just drive me crazy. And, and people, you know, I hear the argument all the time, you know, especially with the Anand Syed case because obviously it's a highly publicized case. There's a lot of strong feelings on both sides of it. Um, and the argument you hear over and over again was, well, of course, he's guilty. He was convicted. He doesn't get the presumption of innocence because he was convicted. And that may be true in the court of law. But to think that a jury is infallible is preposterous to me. I mean, it's these are human beings. And what you just described is sickening. And it happens every day. You know, that this guy was committed to... I'm not going to vote guilty for this guy. I don't believe he's guilty. And then it's, oh, well, if you keep doing that, we don't get to go home for Christmas. Oh, okay, then fine, he's guilty. And he goes home to his family. Yeah, because they went home to their family, and I came home to my family 16 years later as a result of that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, you know, in terms of that issue of jury fallibility, one of the reasons why the average length of long incarceration is 14 years is because there's this judicial mindset, you know, there's a tension in the criminal justice system between the competing concepts of finality of conviction, uh, which is the idea, look, you had your day in court, you lost, it's over already, how many times are we going to keep revisiting this? Uh, so between that concept and accuracy, but I mean, what good is a finality of conviction if, that, if the finality uh, is not, the final result is not accurate? And so a lot of times the key question is not easy, is not as sickening as this is going to be. It's not whether or not someone is innocent or not, if you have the facts on your side. It's not even whether you have the law on your side, in terms, you know, in terms of the rules and uh, case law and constitution. It's whether or not the judges are going to be objective in considering the uh, the arguments. Most of the time, they're not. I mean, I mean, you know, looking at my case, there's so many, there's so many red flags that, you know, and, and things that went wrong, and yet Remember, I lost all of my appeals, and it's that's not an uncommon occurrence that a lot of people who are exonerated they lose their appeals. It's because a lot of the judges they just rubber stamp deny appeals. And it's amazing to me how the state, and that could be any state, will dig their heels in and fight overturning a conviction with the veracity that they do. It's you know I I'm going to be going down to Texas 
uh, in just a couple of weeks. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with a guy named Kerry Max Cook from Texas. It's pretty widely publicized. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, his case is widely publicized. He has the, the book that actually I've met Kerry before, yes. Yeah, and he finally, I don't know if you know this, but on April 12th and 13th, 40 years after he was convicted, he finally has a hearing for exoneration due to actual innocence. You know, he was given an Alford plea about 18 years ago or 20 years ago, but the state, and, and, the, and DNA evidence clearly proved that he didn't do it. They still insisted on taking him back to trial. They know who actually did do it, and they're still fighting, exonerating him. And it just boggles my... That, that is the, the the definition of the corruption of our criminal justice system, that it's this win-lose mentality and justice isn't even considered. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And, uh, you know, I just want to add, you know, just, you know, the alphabet, of course, is when somebody is guilty while, while maintaining their innocence, you know, on the philosophy that, well, they're acknowledging that if they went to trial, then uh, you know the, the prosecution does have uh, enough evidence that they could win a conviction. You know, he only did that. He only took that Alpha plea because he had been wrongfully convicted on that case not once, not twice, but three times. He was wrongfully convicted three times on that on that case. He didn't want to. He didn't want to take a chance with the for the fourth jury. Right. Yeah. And and uh, that's one of the reasons why I want to make sure and. Uh, I'm going to talk about it a little bit on next week's episode, but for all of you listeners listening today, especially any of you from Texas, uh, if you can make the trip to Tyler, Texas on April 12th, I would love to have a huge outpouring of support for Kerry when he walks into that courtroom, and hopefully after all this time, he finally will get fully exonerated. Uh, but moving forward with, with what we're talking about here today, you had mentioned a statistic that 25% of DNA-proven wrongful convictions were the result of false confessions. And that's that's a huge number, and it's a it's a gut wrenching fact that I hope everyone because you know you and I right now are talking to about two hundred thousand possible jurors that someday may be sitting in a jury box. So it's one of the reasons why I want to make sure that this message gets heard. So in your confession, uh, if I understood you correctly, uh, you said that you were able to give details, kind of a narrative of how the crime occurred in your confession. And you said that you had obtained that information during the course of that interrogation, or was it just kind of the whole six-week process leading up to that? The entire six-week process. It was not simply the day of the false confession, but it was also the prior police interaction. And a few of the details also um, came from the uh, newspapers. So, I mean, the police are supposed to withhold certain information uh, about about the crime, um, not certain non-public facts, and you know that that didn't that didn't happen in my case. So, as a result of that, the media was aware of some of the details, and they published that. You know, the purpose of withholding certain information is supposed to be that if the confession does occur, they're supposed to uh, they're supposed to look for elements inside that confession that have not been previously released. So that would be like a proof of like guilty knowledge. But if you share non-public facts, either with the media or in the course of interrogating uh, a suspect, then contamination has, has, has occurred. Right. So in your case, you had received all this information. You basically, from the police and the media, knew what happened. But th this yes. is the part that I really want to try to make people understand that this does mm -hmm. actually happen. Because at some point, 
you made a decision. Young, I mean, 16 years old, young kid, no lawyer, parents not around. But at some point, you made a decision to say, I'm going to say that I did this, and I'm going to use that information to create a narrative to explain how I did that. Can you kind of walk yeah. through that thought process in your mind and when that trigger happened that you decided to go ahead and do this? It was a decision that I made while I was in a terrorized psychological and emotional state. I saw that as my only as my only way out. And I wasn't thinking, well, they're going to arrest me based on this. I'm going to be found guilty, and I'm going to do like 16 years in prison for something I didn't do. I mean, I, that's not the thought process. The thought process is you just want to make them stop. You just want to get out of there. And that's it. And I'm not thinking about anything beyond that. And, and what paves the way for that to, to go forward with that decision is the false promise, well, you're not going to be, you know, arrested if, if, uh, if you confess. Uh, and then in other cases, uh, in some, a similar rationale, you know, the, the interrogators attempt to make it sound as if, well, if you did commit the crime, then, uh, you know, the, uh, it's understandable. You know, they throw, they throw, um, they, you know, they suggest that it would be understandable. And, and of course, if something's understandable or excusable, I mean, well, we don't, they don't punish things that are understandable or excusable. Right. right. That's that's classic read technique interrogation that kind of justify it for you. Like, hey, if you did this, totally understand why you did it. You know, I might have done the same thing. And, and they're methods that are used to coax out these confessions that are that are false. Right. How long were you actually being interrogated on that day when they because I mean, just the process you described is terrible. I mean, the fact that this happened without an attorney and that they had drug you out there and everything they were doing uh, under the pretense of a polygraph examination. You know, and polygraph examinations are not supposed to be an interrogation because they're, you know, they're, they're, they're obviously very fallible as it is, but, and that's why they're not admissible in most states, but they're based on stress level. So the examiner is not supposed to intentionally put you under stress. So that process is just, crazy to me that they were doing that to you, but how long were you there? How long were you in that room going through all of this that day? Six and a half to seven hours. And I want to add for context that we had a polygraph at, at the, during the lawsuits afterwards, we had a polygraph expert review everything. But in his report, he said that the maximum amount of time that anybody should ever be attached to a polygraph would be like two and a half, three hours. And in my situation, it was more than double that, and he found that outrageous. But then in addition to that, he also made the finding that he said that this was not an actual polygraph examination at all, that this was just a straight interrogation masked as a polygraph. Right, yeah, that's exactly what it sounds like. And so, you know, without just beating the horse to death, I just want to make this clear for all of you that are listening right now to to put yourself in that situation. I mean, we're talking to a man here for all of your thoughts about wrongful confessions and how you maybe believe they do or don't happen. I mean, we are speaking to a man that it was proven beyond any shadow of a doubt did not commit this crime and made the decision to confess to this crime and, and confess by giving a narrative that didn't happen, obviously, with information that he had gotten 
from the police officers, which this is exactly what we've been talking about for all of these months in regards to Jay Wilds, in regards to Kenny Snow, the other cases that we're working. You need to understand that these things do indeed happen. And so I, I want to thank you, Jeff, for, for telling your story about what happened to you and, and talking about these false confessions and the wrongful convictions. And what that leads me into is I really, really admire you. I, ju- I just met Jeff at the Night for Justice Gala in Baltimore and got to hear him speak. And I was just just floored by Jeff because after spending 16 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit and losing all of that part of his life, uh, he didn't get out and just go about his business. Uh, Jeff got out and took up the cause to help other people that are in these situations. So, uh, Jeff, if if you don't mind, I want to give you the floor and have you just explain to the listeners what you've been doing since you've been out. Yes, uh, when I when, since I've been out, uh, I've become an advocate. So for about uh, five years, I was a I was just an individual uh, advocate. So uh, I gave a lot of presentations across the country. I was a columnist for five years. Uh, so I wrote more than 200 articles on the topic. I've done a lot of uh, media, television, radio, and print media interviews, basically trading, excuse me, basically trading privacy in exchange for greater awareness of these issues and hope that that paves the way for changes in the law so that the system can be more accurately prevent wrongful convictions. Uh, I met with a lot of uh, elected officials from classified legislative hearings. Uh, I continued on with my formal education. Uh, I received a scholarship from Mercy College, which included allowing me to live on campus because I would have been into a homeless shelter or were not for that. Then I uh, went on to grad school where I got a master's degree with my thesis written on wrongful conviction uh, clauses and, and reforms. And uh, when I received some financial compensation, uh, I took a significant amount of the compensation that I received, and I started a nonprofit organization named after me. Uh, the Jeff Gaskinick Foundation for Justice, whose purpose is to fight wrongful conviction. So we uh, do the awareness and changes in the law that I did as an individual, just with a support staff, so more of the same. But then we do two things that I could never do as an individual. We we uh, work on exonerating uh, people who are wrongfully convicted, uh, and then we also help exonerees uh, reintegrate back into society. So super quickly... Uh, in our, uh, the things that makes us unique is we handle both DNA and non-DNA cases. Most organizations will only handle a DNA uh, case, but DNA is only available in 5 to 5% of all serious felony cases. We advocate for policy changes that the other organizations privately agree with us about, but will not verbalize, such as having an oversight board, a commission on prosecuting conduct. Then we also, uh, we utilize parole as a stopgap measure, meaning that if any of our clients come up for parole, their case that might not be in a procedural position where it's ready to go to court and argue that they're innocent, but it's clear from the record and maybe from some other evidence that's been uh, uncovered that they are innocent. So we send a letter to the parole board outlining all the primary and secondary reasons why we believe that the client's innocent. And we urge the parole board to uh, parole them rather than turn them down because they assert their innocence at the parole board. Uh, then we also um, provide the short-term housing for, for exonerees. We've leased the two-bedroom apartment. This is served as um, 
uh, place for people, uh, four different local Jamaican people that didn't have a place to stay. Lastly, we're the only organization started by exonerate that has uh, that has uh, an exonerated component to it. So in our three and a half years of uh, existence, our highlights have included we helped exonerate one person, William Lopez, who had been lawfully incarcerated for 23 and a half years. Uh, we convinced the parole board to release three different people on instance grounds. We helped four exonerees uh, reintegrate back into society. And we've done a bunch of presentations at uh, police academies, judicial seminars, uh, groups of prosecutors, and the defense squad. Currently, what we're doing right now is we're trying to uh, raise money for the organization. Obviously, that gave us a running, a good running start to committing the amount of money that I, that I did. But, you know, I can't fund the organization indefinitely on my own. So, we're in the process of, um, trying to, uh, raise money. We have a, uh, uh, a Patreon, uh, page, which is a online, uh, fundraising platform for people who are willing to donate money on a recurring basis. Uh, we're trying to get uh, a lot of people just to commit to donating five to ten dollars every month. I mean, that's just the price of what going out to lunch just one time, uh, and and so that could make such a difference uh, in in making that short sacrifice on the individual level. I mean, if a lot of people did that. That money that's uh, funded, uh, we can use that to help free wrongful convicted uh, prisoners as well as prevent wrongful convictions. You know, I work about 50, 60 hours at the organization. I do that for free. You know, I have the luxury of being able to do that because I have the passive income stream from the compensation. But the actual staff that does the substance of legal work, the investigators, the attorneys, the paralegals, uh, even people that work in development, they have to make a salary in order to be able to make ends meet. And, you know, that, that costs money. And there's always court costs and you know, filing documents and copies. There's a lot that goes into it. And so, you know, we need the general public to support us. I mean, you talked about context. Uh, this past year, 149 people were exonerated across the country. Then, in the year before that, 137 people were. And then in 2012 and 2013, 91 people were exonerated each year. The National Registry of Exonerations, which tracks exonerations that happen nationally. Uh, so from their study starts from 1989 forward. So in that short time, they, they documented more than 730 exonerations across the country. So multiple convictions happen, can, can and do happen to anyone, and they're happening at a much more frequent clip than what most of us in society realize. And even though the, the people that have been out have been released that I mentioned, um, that seems like a large number, but those are the people that are exonerated. Those are not the people that are wrongfully, still wrongfully convicted who are still... Uh, uh, wrongfully in prison, uh, each each one of these organizations are including are flooded with uh, with uh, with people uh, making actual innocence claims. There's a huge backlog. There's not enough resources. There's not enough organizations. We need everybody in society to donate money. I mean, I think one of the biggest myths is you have to be wealthy to donate. Well, you don't. People of, of modest means, middle class, who can afford? I want to know something. I want to know who cannot afford to commit five dollars a month. Who can't do that? Who can't do 10 if you're doing a little bit better? It seems like it would be nothing, but look at how much money these politicians for their, you know, political campaigns raise with small donations. So uh, that's, that's really not my pitch as well as uh, if there's any organizations that are professional entities and they can donate their services, uh, they can, as an in-time donation, we are a 501c3. So 
so they can go tax right off of that. That's another way that they can uh, help us. That's amazing, Jeff. I think your organization is incredible, and it's amazing to me the the work that you're doing and the success that you're already having. Uh, and for my listeners, um, I, I'll tell you that I personally am going to be donating to Jeff's fund uh, on a recurring basis. I think that you know, there's so many there's so many places where we can donate and make a difference. And this is just a cause that I strongly believe in. And, and Jeff said it, we're talking about a monthly donation. Um, you know, and, and there is enough of you out there listening that, that literally if everyone donated a dollar a month, it would change the world for this organization. So please consider donating to, to Jeff's foundation uh, let's continue our work in this movement to help exonerate the wrongfully convicted. I will be, if, if you didn't, uh, it's going to be hard to read uh, uh, website link addresses here on the show. So uh, when this is over, look at the show notes. I will have links to Jeff's Foundation, also to the Patreon page where you can donate. And I would definitely encourage everybody to do that. I think it's a great way for a, little, for a small amount for us all to make a big difference. And Jeff, one more time, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your your insanely busy days to address my listeners. Um, I hope it's been, I'm sure it has been very educational for everybody to hear the statement. And if there's ever any cases or anything where you might be able to use our help to help publicize or to get more people on board that are willing to donate their time to help investigate these things, uh, we've got a large army behind us and, and we're definitely willing to help. That's great, Bob. I'll talk to you offline about that. I'll take you up on that. That really would be appreciated. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. You know, and, and, uh, you know, I mean, I have a, this isn't, I just want to close by saying this, Bob. This isn't about me. I'm out. I'm, I'm home. I'm exonerated. This is about the people that I met who left behind, not just in New York State, but nationally that are still in that same position that I was once in. I can't forget about them. And in addition, I mean, I need to make a difference. I find this to be healing and cathartic, and uh, I need to make some sense out of what happened to me. And I believe this is my calling. I think that's why this happened to me. This is my mission in life. So, again, thank you for uh, giving me the platform to reach your listeners. I hope a lot of them do contribute so that we can continue to do our work of freeing people who are wrongfully convicted. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, and keep the faith, brother, and we will be in touch. Jeff's story, after speaking to him personally and listening to him explain why he gave a false confession, has been the most eye-opening experience of this entire journey for me. Whether it be Jay Wilds or Kenny Snow or Patricia Mims, even though I know that it happens, it is really, really difficult for me even to wrap my brain around the idea that someone would confess to a crime that they didn't commit. It almost seems like a fairy tale, like something that doesn't really actually happen. But we just heard from someone who it did happen to. We heard a man talk about that moment when he made a decision in his mind to say that he committed a rape and a murder when he in fact had nothing to do with it and didn't know who did. There are several things that we can take away from this. One, I hope it gives us a better understanding and more of an open mind when we're investigating our current cases and future cases down the road. 
There are people that have openly said that they think that it's ridiculous, that it's a crazy conspiracy theory to think that Jay Wilds might have falsely given his confession. Well, Jeff's story proves that that's not the case. These things do happen. You've heard Jim Trainum on this program speak about exactly this. You've also heard Jim Clemente talk about how he will evaluate a witness's statement that just because they say something is so, just because they say they did it, doesn't mean that that's necessarily true. This is not a crazy conspiracy theory. It's something that happens all the time. Sometimes it happens by accident, as was the case for the false confession that Jim Trainum got that led him to advocating for proper interrogation techniques. And sometimes it happens by corrupt, intentional coercion on the part of the police officers. However it happens, it's important for us to understand that it does happen. Also, every single one of you listening right now may at some point be called to serve on a jury. If we're doing nothing else, we are educating the American people, and not just in America, internationally, that we need to take a closer look at the evidence presented at any trial when we're sitting on that jury. You may be the person who is that voice of reason. You may end up being the person that says, I don't care if I have to stay here through the Christmas holiday. I'm not sending a 17-year-old boy to prison for the rest of his life just so I don't miss the turkey dinner. Every person on this planet matters. And one person can make a difference. You can be that change. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all of the music for the show. Remember that if you like the music, you can purchase the soundtrack, Truth and Justice the Music, on iTunes. You can also preview the album at truthandjusticemusic.com. And remember that all proceeds from those purchases go directly to Johnny as a thank you for all the time that he spent creating this music for the show free of charge. I'll thank Tate Grupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to Daniel Schaefer for editing the podcast. I want to thank all of you who called into the show or tried to call into the show today. And I know this was a long episode, but hopefully you all enjoyed the listener call-in segment. It's not something we're going to do real often, but from time to time, I think it's nice to take some time to hear all of you listeners and hear what you have to say and the questions that you have. So thank you all for your engagement, whether it be through email or Facebook or Twitter or calling into the show or on the Periscopes. And as always, you can always get in touch with me through Twitter at TruthJusticePod. You can like and follow the Facebook page. You can send all of your thoughts, theories, and ideas into theories at truthandjusticepod.com. And if you have a new case that you'd like me to consider, send those emails into cases at truthandjusticepod.com. It's been great hearing from all of you this week. I appreciate all the love and support. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.